I'm Emily Kate, and this is We the Voters. Hi, and welcome to episode 12 of the We the Voters podcast. We the Voters is a podcast where I take hot topics in U.S. culture and break them down from opposite opinions. It is officially the final episode of season one. If you've been with me from the start, found me along the way, or just stumbled upon this episode, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. So, who am I? I'm your host, Emily Kate Topcheski. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief at We the Voters, which is basically a fancy way of saying this project is just me, so I wear a lot of hats. I'm a podcaster, editor, producer, writer, filmmaker, photographer, web designer, travel coordinator, social media manager, and the list goes on. We the Voters began in 2019 when I set off on the road to understand the ways U.S. citizens are more alike than different. This podcast is my next step in bridging the ways we listen and talk about the other side, no matter what side you're on. For the finale of Season 1, I want to take a look at two competing ideas that surface when discussing the role of the U.S. in the world. Isolationism and interventionism. Many people are asking big questions, like what is the responsibility of the U.S. as a world leader? And what should the future hold for foreign affairs? In the next hour, I'll take myths apart and find the facts about America's role in the world. We'll take a look at two opposite opinions. One in support of isolationism, saying that the U.S. is best served if it limits its role in global affairs. And one in support of interventionism and internationalism, saying it is the responsibility of the U.S. to be a leader in the world. But before we take a look at these opinions, let's ground our discussion with some basic facts about isolationism, interventionism, and their histories in the United States. American foreign policy has moved between isolationism and interventionism throughout all of the country's history. Some decades, the focus has been on positioning the U.S. as a dominant force in world affairs. Other decades, the view stands that the U.S. should withdraw or refuse to get involved. This view often surfaces during hard economic times or costly wars. Isolationism is a government policy of taking no role in world affairs. Whether it is spoken or unspoken, it can be seen as either reluctance or refusal to participate in international agreements. These agreements can include treaties, alliances, and trade commitments. Isolationists say that this policy allows a nation to devote all of its efforts and resources towards its own advancement. It allows a nation to remain at peace by avoiding binding or temporary responsibilities to other countries. In the U.S., only a small percentage of isolationists want complete removal from the world stage. Instead, many isolationists support negotiation, rather than warfare, as a method to assert American influence. On the other hand, interventionism is a government policy of interfering in foreign affairs. This can be through economic, political, or military means. One example of this policy would be a country stepping into another country, whether through overt or covert means, to stop a dictator from killing his own people. Interventionists say that while some interventions go awry, exacerbating a problem and leading to further conflict, Other acts of interventionism are seen as a success, aiding countries in turmoil and restoring peace. In the U.S., interventionism has largely been driven by economic opportunities in Central and South America, as well as around the world. Many supporters say that this foreign policy method shows American strength, protects the little guy, and demonstrates a leadership role in world affairs. Similarly, internationalism is another version of having an active role in global affairs. It refers to a government's active position in building and sustaining international order. This foreign policy often favors democratization, free trade, and global military activism. The pendulum in foreign policy has swung between isolationism and interventionism since the country's foundation in the late 18th century. In 1794, the U.S. negotiated a treaty with the British government. 
This treaty addressed foreign policy issues with the island across the sea, but was largely considered a failure. Escalating tensions led to the conflict in the War of 1812. In 1796, President George Washington gave his farewell address. He warned of the danger of political parties and the danger of meddling in foreign affairs. This stance was highly influential, resulting in an isolationist policy that ruled much of the 1800s. Two years later, President Adams sent delegates to France to discuss the status of the French-U.S. alliance. When the Americans arrived, three Frenchmen demanded a bribe to speak with the diplomat, which the president refused. Following this action, the U.S. never got involved with the Napoleonic Wars. The U.S.-French alliance effectively ended in 1800. In 1807, Congress passed the Embargo Act and the Non-Intercourse Acts. These laws stopped the U.S. from trading with France and Britain. Their goal was to punish these European nations for their treatment of U.S. sailors, but it ended up hurting the domestic economy. On a positive note, many new factories were being built in the northern U.S. during this time period in response to the trade ban. Five years later, the War of 1812 began. This war between the United States and Britain was largely due to the effects of trade restrictions during the Napoleonic Wars. It ended with the Treaty of Ghent, which stopped the armed conflict but did not address any of the concerns that started the war. In 1823, President Monroe gave his seventh State of the Union address. In this speech, he stated that any future colonization in the Western Hemisphere by European nations would be seen as an act of aggression. He also promised that the U.S. would not interfere with European affairs. This speech is known as the Monroe Doctrine. It became the cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy for generations to come, and it is largely seen as an isolationist policy. From 1880 to the start of the 20th century, immigration grew exponentially in the United States. These immigrants primarily came from Europe. They settled in America's largest cities, forming ethnic neighborhoods across the country. In 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. This law largely restricted immigration from China. It was not repealed for more than 60 years. Seven years later, the U.S. pushed a big sister policy in foreign relations. This policy asked Latin American countries to rally behind U.S. leadership. It also called upon nations to trade freely with one another. This is a seedling of interventionism and internationalist policy in the United States. But in 1894, Congress passed the Wilson-Gorman Tariff Act. This law was considered far-reaching tariff reform. It added a number of items to the free list, including sugar, lumber, coal, and wool. It also reduced duties on imported manufactured goods. The next year, Cuban farmers burned down their sugar fields in response to these tariffs. As a result of the act, there was a 40% duty applied to foreign sugar, which crippled sugar production in Cuba. These farmers hoped to pressure Spain and the U.S. for Cuban independence, which was not immediately successful. Also in 1895, a dispute over the border between Venezuela and British Guinea began. The U.S. accused Britain of violating the Monroe Doctrine, sending a letter to London. After four months of no reply, the U.S. prepared to go to war. The British instead focused its disputes in South Africa, resolving the conflict in South America and thus with the U.S. This moved Britain and the U.S. into a reconciliation period. In 1898, Congress passed the Teller Amendment. This was an agreement to withdraw from Cuba immediately after Spanish rule was overthrown. It reassured world nations that the U.S. was invading Cuba to uphold democratic ideals, not in the name of imperialism. In 1899, the U.S. urged major world powers to uphold fair trade in China through their individual spheres of influence. Britain, Germany, France, and Japan all accepted this proposal under the condition that every nation accepted together. Russia declined the agreement, which the U.S. did not recognize, declaring that, quote, open door was in effect, unquote. This is an example of the swing back towards interventionism and internationalism in foreign policy. In 1901, the U.S. stipulated that Cuba write their own constitution before gaining independence. This document was known as the Platt Amendment. 
It sought to ensure that Cuba was more stable before being set free. Also this year, a new treaty between the U.S. and Britain was signed to create a South American canal. The Hay-Ponsforth Treaty gave the U.S. the right to build and fortify a canal in the Southern Hemisphere. Two years later, Panama declared independence from a Colombian government that refused to sell the U.S. land for this canal. A newly appointed prime minister gave them the land, signing a new treaty between the countries. In 1904, President Roosevelt amended the Monroe Doctrine to include the Roosevelt Corollary. This was added in response to Europe attempting to intervene in the Dominican Republic to collect debts. This addition says that, quote, in the event of future financial malfeasance by the Latin American nations, the United States itself would intervene, take over the custom houses, pay off the debts, and keep the troublesome European powers on the other side of the Atlantic, unquote. During the following decade, the U.S. took on a new way of building relationships abroad called dollar diplomacy. This was a policy that encouraged Wall Street to invest their money in U.S. interests around the world. These interests included the Philippines, China's Manchuria, the Caribbean islands, and areas in South America that were critical in building and securing the Panama Canal. In the lead-up to the First World War, President Wilson completely appended foreign policy. President Wilson was an anti-imperialist who did not care for President Roosevelt's big stickism, or President Taft's dollar diplomacy. He returned foreign policy to an isolationist stance. For the first three years of World War I, the U.S. remained neutral in the conflict. Then, in 1917, the U.S. intervened, first with trade policy that was nearly solely with the Allied forces. Then, the U.S. troops formally joined the Allies that April. Following the Great War, 800,000 European immigrants came to the U.S. at the start of the 1920s. As a response to this new flow of immigration, Congress passed the Emergency Quota Act of 1921. This law restricted immigration from European countries to 3% of the people from their country that currently resided in the U.S. This move further added to the isolationist sentiment that had kept the United States neutral at the beginning of World War I. In 1924, the U.S. loaned money to Germany through the Dawes Plan. This loan was used to pay off German debts to Britain and France, who then used the money to pay back the United States. This loan was intended to help solve the debt crises following World War I, but ultimately failed as the U.S. never truly got their money back from the conflict. Also this year, a new Immigration Act was passed in Congress. This act reduced immigration allotment down to 2% and banned Japanese immigration. This action continued to add to a growing isolationist sentiment in the country. In 1933, President Roosevelt went the opposite route and enacted an interventionist policy in Latin America. The Good Neighbor Policy intended to improve diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Latin American countries. It included ending armed intervention in the region and removed U.S. Marines from Haiti. Also in 1933, 66 nations met in London to find a worldwide solution to the Great Depression. The U.S. did not participate in this conference. Instead, President Roosevelt shamed other nations for attempting to stabilize world currencies. The U.S. remained neutral in the lead-up and beginning of World War II. This included the passage of the Neutrality Acts in 1936 and 1937. These laws banned U.S. citizens from traveling on hostile ships and selling arms to belligerents. In 1939, Congress passed a new act that allowed U.S. citizens to sell arms to belligerents on a cash-and-carry basis. This meant that buyers must be able to pay for arms and cash, hauling them away on their own ships. Also at this time, the U.S. agreed to lend arms, munition, and ships to Britain and Russia in their fight during World War II. There was a mutual understanding that these nations would return the materials after the conflict. In 1941, Japan attacked a U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. This prompted the U.S. to enter World War II, joining the Allied effort against the Axis powers. Four years later, the war ended. This same year, the United Nations was founded. 
the UN sought to preserve peace and streamline international diplomacy. Then, in 1946, the U.S. shifted its focus to contain communism. This came following Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech. In the new U.S. policy, the foreign affairs goal was not to directly combat communism. Instead, the goal was to contain communism to areas where it was already present. In 1947, the U.S. established the Truman Doctrine. Through this doctrine, the country gave $400 million in relief to both Turkey and Greece, who were facing potential communist revolutions. This action demonstrated that the U.S. was willing to support anti-communist movements around the world. The Truman Doctrine began moving the U.S. into a largely interventionist role through the remainder of the 20th century. This same year, the U.S. announced a plan to provide financial relief to Europe through the Marshall Plan. This plan intended to deter struggling European countries from implementing communism as a way to solve their post-war economic issues. This plan increased tension between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which was seeking to expand its regime. Also in 1947, Congress passed the National Security Act. This act reorganized foreign policy and military organizations in the U.S. It established the CIA, which served as an intelligence-gathering organization. It also merged the War Department with the Navy Department, creating the Department of Defense. In 1949, the U.S. joined 11 other European nations in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. NATO marked a shift away from isolationism into interventionism. It also escalated tension and militarization in the Cold War. In the 1950s, Senator Joseph McCarthy began a campaign to uncover alleged communists in the U.S. government and public life. This effort became known as McCarthyism. He was censured by the U.S. Senate four years later. Back in 1952, President Eisenhower was elected. He enacted a strong anti-communist foreign policy. Within this policy was the concept of massive retaliation. Massive retaliation stated that if the Soviet Union tried to expand or take further control in the world, the U.S. would respond immediately. It used nuclear deterrence as an attempt to prevent further Soviet expansion. In 1954, the CIA secretly overthrew two communist regimes, one in Iran and another in Guatemala. This interference in world affairs would create future problems in foreign policy. This is particularly evident in the Middle East, where Iranians later revolted against the leader that the U.S. had secretly placed in power. In the 1960s, the U.S. stepped up military intervention in support of South Vietnam. Together, they fought against North Vietnam and its communist allies. U.S. involvement in this conflict became increasingly controversial over the coming decade, as the involvement became more and more substantial and military deaths rose. In 1961, the U.S. learned that the Soviet Union established a nuclear missile base in Cuba. In response, President Kennedy blockaded the island and searched all ships asking to pass. After 13 days of nuclear standoff, the Soviet Union agreed to remove its missiles as long as the U.S. removed its missiles from Turkey and promised not to invade Cuba. In the 1970s, the Vietnam War came to an end. A ceasefire agreement in Vietnam was signed. The conflict claimed approximately 58,000 American lives and thousands of Vietnamese lives. In the 1980s, President Reagan led a tough anti-communist policy abroad. In his 1985 State of the Union address, he called upon Congress and U.S. citizens to stand up against the Soviet Union. He shifted U.S. policy from containment to a rollback strategy. This strategy involved actively pushing back communist influences around the world. It channeled support to proxy armies worldwide to curtail Soviet influence. In 1986, the U.S. bombed several Libyan cities. Following this action, the Iran Gate scandal was uncovered. This scandal revealed the proceeds from secret U.S. arms sales in Iran were being used illegally to fund Contra rebels in Nicaragua. In 1989, the U.S. invaded Panama. 
troops ousted its government and arrested its leader on drug trafficking charges. The former Panamanian leader, General Manuel Noriega, was a one-time CIA informant. The Cold War ended officially in the early 1990s following the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. In 1991, the U.S. became involved in the Gulf War. The U.S. entered the war after Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. It ended years later with the expulsion of Iraqi troops from that country. At the end of the 20th century, the U.S. played a leading role in NATO action against Yugoslavia. This action came in response to Serbian violence against ethnic Albanians in the Kosovo province. In 2001, al-Qaeda terrorists attacked the United States through coordinated attacks that killed thousands of civilians and first responders. This action was the largest terrorist attack on U.S. soil. Following this attack, the U.S. began a war on terror. This effort included invasions on both Afghanistan and Iraq. U.S. troops led airstrikes in Afghanistan that fall, helping opposition forces defeat the Taliban regime. In 2005, Congress renewed the Patriot Act. This act sought to deter and punish terrorist acts in the U.S. and around the world. Two years later, President Bush dispatched thousands of more U.S. troops to provide security in Iraq. In 2011, U.S. troops killed al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden was the leader credited with coordinating the September 11th terrorist attacks. In 2018, President Trump met with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to continue a conversation about reducing tensions in the Korean Peninsula. This was the first summit between the two nations. It concluded with an agreement about diffusing tensions and nuclear disarmament on the peninsula. Which brings us to today. A 2019 Gallup poll found that 69% of Americans reported that the U.S. should play a strong role in world affairs. 23% of these respondents said that the U.S. should have the leading role, and 46% said that the U.S. should have a major role. On the other hand, 30% of Americans reported the U.S. should reject most or all roles in world affairs. 25% of these respondents said that the U.S. should have a minor role, and 5% said no role at all. In the 21st century, Americans have largely shown a majority preference for a strong, proactive foreign policy. This has lately remained in about the three-quarter majority since the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. However, a growing number of Americans support isolationist policies since 2001. This sentiment has grown 5 percentage points up to 30%, or just less than a third of all Americans, in 2019. Many Americans appear split on how effective foreign policy is for the United States. According to the Pew Research Center in February 2021, 54% of respondents said that working with other countries could help solve many of the problems facing the United States today. On the other hand, 45% of Americans said that working with other countries could only solve a few of these problems. Over U.S. history, the American government has grappled with its role in the world. At some points, it's leaned more towards an active role in foreign affairs. At other points, it has taken a backseat in foreign policy. According to the Pew Research Center, 11% of Americans said that the U.S. should be the single world leader. One in 10 Americans said that the U.S. should not have any leadership role in the world. And the remaining 78% report that the U.S. should have a shared leadership role in world affairs. The top three priorities U.S. adults report for foreign policy are protecting American jobs, protecting the country from terrorist attacks, and reducing the spread of infectious diseases. According to the Pew Research Center, the bottom three priorities are aiding refugees fleeing violence, reducing legal immigration, and promoting democracy around the world. Overall, the American public appears split evenly on U.S. involvement in foreign affairs. 49% report that, quote, it's best for the future of our country to be active in foreign affairs, unquote. On the other hand, 50% report, quote, we should pay less attention to problems overseas and concentrate on problems here at home, unquote. 
In today's episode, we'll discuss the specifics between these split opinions about American foreign policy. After the break, we'll take a look at one opinion, that isolationism protects the American way of life and keeps citizens safe. Then we'll take a look at the opposite opinion, that interventionism and internationalism contribute more to the United States than they take away, and it sets America apart. But first, let's take that break. And we're back. In President Washington's farewell address, he gave the following warning. Quote, the great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. Unquote. This isolationist groundwork set a cornerstone for American foreign policy for generations to come. The attitude of focusing inward rather than as a world leader was seen as many as an opportunity to build the country up and establish the American way of life. Over the following centuries, American foreign policy would shift regularly between an isolationist policy and a more interventionist one. Historically, supporters point to periods of isolationism as periods of great economic production and growth. They say that the time is now to embrace isolationism and its potential strategic advantages. Supporters of isolationism point to the following three reasons. 1. An isolationist foreign policy maintains peace, avoids conflict, and allows for coexistence. 2. An isolationist foreign policy promotes increased focus on domestic policy. And 3. An isolationist foreign policy reduces military spending and aids the economy. Let's take a look at these one by one. First, supporters say that an isolationist foreign policy maintains peace, avoids complicated alliances, and allows for coexistence. Isolationists say that supporting this policy doesn't necessarily mean pulling out of foreign affairs entirely. Only a small percentage of supporters agree with that statement. Instead, many isolationists support taking a lesser role in global affairs. They say that the U.S. involvement has swung too far into overreach, which has taken a toll on U.S. troops and the American people. Alan Grayson is a Florida congressman. He says, quote, We are not the world's policemen, nor its judge and jury. Our own needs in America are great, and they come first, unquote. Supporters of an isolationist foreign policy say that isolationism is often mischaracterized. Modern policy involves a vision of quiet strength and national autonomy. They say that going abroad is not only not necessary, it's counterproductive. Eric Nordlinger is a foreign policy expert. He wrote a book in 1995 entitled Isolationism Reconfigured, which was later reviewed by Doug Bando, a policy expert at the Cato Institute. Eric wrote that isolationism was a clear choice because, quote, the United States is strategically immune in being insulated, invulnerable, impermeable, and impervious and thus has few security reasons to become engaged politically and militarily, unquote. Isolationists say that this foreign policy is not weak or disengaged. Instead, they say that a high-quality isolationist policy would translate to a narrow security perimeter, which would still provide protection for national security. Quote, in general, threats against this core interest are defended against. Activities outside of it are ignored. There are no allies and clients to be defended, no threats of extended deterrence, interventions, negotiated settlements, military and economic assistance programs, and only a few arms control treaties, unquote. There is currently debate in the isolationist community about what is considered a narrow security border. Some consider it the entire North American landmass. Others consider Latin America to be part of the security zone. But still, they agree that a narrow perimeter is key to this policy. Eric writes, quote, America's security is maximized by a minimal activism around the narrow core, unquote. Isolationists say that protecting security interests is best procured by not overstretching the military. 
Instead, isolationism focuses foreign policy on advocacy and example to maintain U.S. credibility. Quote, a non-engaged America, relieved of the heavy demands of extended deterrence, would have had little reason to worry about its credibility once the security perimeter was defined in terms of our highest intrinsic values. Unquote. Charles Kupchan is a Georgetown University professor. He wrote an op-ed in The Atlantic saying that rediscovering isolationism's strategic advantages offers an opportunity to find the middle ground between being too active and too detached from world affairs. Quote, Blanket condemnation of the strategic logic of isolationism not only distorts U.S. history, but also does Americans a grave disservice. The country cannot and should not return to the hemispheric isolation of the 19th century. But the nation desperately needs a frank and open conversation, guided by a full account of the lessons of history, about how to responsibly scale back its foreign entanglements. Unquote. Charles writes that the focus needs to shift from intervening in foreign nations and focus once again on building a strong country at home. But as with most things, it must come with balance. Quote, the public senses strategic overreach, just as it did after the nation's acquisition of overseas possessions in the Spanish-American War and its entry into World War I soon thereafter. Amid the extraordinary economic hardships spawned by the spread of COVID-19, Americans want investment in Arkansas, not in Afghanistan, paralleling the inward turn that occurred during the 30s. Unquote. Isolationists say it is time to return to the roots put forth by George Washington and the Monroe Doctrine. Through the 19th century, the United States continued to extend its reach across North America, purchasing and annexing territories. But its involvement in world affairs and overseas territories was largely muted. Supporters of isolationism say that shunning international alliances preserves the unique American experiment, the political and economic liberty needed to make the country what it is. By keeping the focus on the nation itself, it avoids conflict and corrupting outside forces. For example, President Washington had strong isolationist instincts. Relying on these instincts, he revoked a pact with France that had turned the tide in the Revolutionary War. Instead, when Britain and France went to war again in 1793, Washington refused to come to France's aid. He claimed U.S. neutrality. This dismissal of formal alliances would stand until World War II, when the U.S. joined the Allied forces. Supporters say that this involvement has brought more problems than benefits for the American people. Charles writes, quote, Foreign ambition risked not only forcing the United States to play by the rules of real politic, but also imperiling domestic liberty by requiring standing armies and two powerful federal authorities. Washington warned in his farewell address that overgrown military establishments are particularly hostile to Republican liberty. Other founders feared that entanglement in great power politics would siphon funds from productive investment and lead to high taxation, both of which would weigh on the growth and prosperity and imperil the nation's commercial ascent. Unquote. Supporters say that isolationism maintains peace by ensuring the U.S. doesn't get involved in fights that don't involve them. By engaging in isolationist policy, it could potentially save American lives by reducing military and civilian reach around the world, both in constant presence and in the number of conflicts the U.S. pursues. Isolationists say that pulling back from involvement in global affairs doesn't mean ignoring them completely. Instead, the majority of isolationists, according to both the Pew Research Center and Gallup polls, believe that the U.S. should still have at least minor involvement in foreign affairs. Quote, An increasingly illiberal world desperately needs the United States to again anchor democratic ideals. The progressive flow of history may end if America is no longer interested in or capable of taping the scales in the right direction. The top priority, however, must be in getting the nation's political and economic house in order, rather than going abroad in search of monsters to destroy. The U.S. cannot serve as a model for the world unless its Republican institutions earn their keep. Unquote. Isolationist promotes spreading democracy through example and advocacy, rather than conflict and overreach. 
They want to walk the line between leading and following rather than acting as the world's police. Charles writes, quote, Moving forward, Americans need to engage in a messy and imperfect world while resisting the temptation either to recoil from it or to remake it. The United States needs to step back without stepping away, unquote. Second, proponents say that an isolationist foreign policy promotes increased focus on domestic policy. Isolationists say that when the U.S. adopts a more isolationist policy, it will be able to focus more intently on domestic programs. This, in turn, will benefit American citizens. One key method of isolationist domestic policy is establishing tariffs on imported goods and services. Supporters say that this is an effective method in helping American businesses succeed and growing American jobs. At the most basic level, a tariff is a tax charged on goods or services as they are moved between nations. These taxes are typically charged by the country who is importing the goods. There are two different types, protective tariffs and revenue tariffs. Protective tariffs charge a higher tax on imported goods than a version of the same product made in the country. This is intended to help businesses sell domestically made goods at a more competitive price. On the other hand, revenue tariffs raise money on goods made internationally, allowing a country to invest in other resources. For example, import taxes on foreign oil or products only available from other countries. Supporters say that increasing tariffs supports American businesses and workers, and that enacting an isolationist policy ensures that the government can focus on domestic issues first. National Geographic reports, quote, Tariffs mainly benefit the importing countries, as they are the ones setting the policy and receiving the money. The primary benefit is that tariffs produce revenue on goods and services brought into the country. Tariffs can also serve as an opening point for negotiations between two countries, unquote. Isolationists also point out that tariffs can support a country's political goals and they can help a government regulate or stabilize domestic industry. Quote, a government can set taxes on domestic products that are in line with international tariffs to level the playing field. Tariffs can make a market predictable. A prime example of this is the agricultural trade, which is subject to quotas, import limitations, and tariffs. Unquote. Supporters say that the United States needs to be strong at home to be strong abroad. Tariffs can help small companies compete with larger businesses. When large businesses are faced with the choice of making goods abroad and paying high fees or making products at home, it helps level the playing field for all businesses. This, in turn, can drive consumers towards visiting and purchasing from American-made businesses, which then can increase the market for service-based companies who see an increased number of clients due to the rising revenue and jobs produced by goods-based businesses. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, or CFR. While he is not considered a strict isolationist, his recent book, Foreign Policy Begins at Home, has some strong isolationist throughlines. Richard says that these domestic challenges can no longer be ignored. Quote, but what makes this situation particularly worrisome are a large number of internal developments, including a burgeoning deficit in debt, crumbling infrastructure, second-class schools, an outdated immigration system, and the prospect for a prolonged period of low economic growth. Many of the foundations of this country's power are Eroding. The effect, however, is not limited to a deteriorating transportation system or jobs that go unfilled or overseas owing to a lack of qualified American workers, unquote. Instead, Richard says that shortcomings in domestic policy erode America's ability to be a global leader. And like some other supporters, he points out that turmoil in domestic policies make it more difficult for businesses to compete in a global marketplace. They say it also makes it more difficult for the country to lead in production. When domestic policy dips, the ability to generate resources needed to lead as an example and a global powerhouse dips as well, which in turn makes it more difficult to promote U.S. interests abroad, both in business and political influence. Richard writes, quote, As a result, the ability of the United States to act and lead in the world is diminishing. I would prefer not to test the notion that this country requires a full-fledged crisis, be it in the form of a run on the dollar or some catastrophe brought about by terrorists or nature, 
to get its government to do what it needs doing, in part because if it does, it will be that much more painful and expensive to address the shortcomings of America's economy, schools, immigration policy, infrastructure, and much more, unquote. But despite the challenges ahead, many isolationists still feel that the U.S. has great strength and great potential. Instead, they say that the country is underperforming, and it is time to kick into full gear. Quote, many other countries are performing better than they did in the past, and in some areas are doing better than the United States. The combination of these trends bodes poorly for the ability of the United States to compete economically and to shape international events. Unquote. Third, supporters say that an isolationist foreign policy reduces military spending, allowing the government to reduce the budget or redistribute spending. Allowing the government to reduce the budget or redistribute funds. Isolationists say that U.S. foreign policy is coming at the expense of liberty and prosperity within its borders. Richard writes that for the past two decades, American foreign policy has simply overreached. And much of this overreach is to the detriment of the American people. Quote, there is an even stronger case that U.S. foreign policy should focus not so much on what other countries are within their borders and more on what they do outside their borders. This will be difficult at times as situations will arise in which standing aside will appear to be immoral or strategically short-sighted or both. That said, the United States needs to balance its desire to do good with its ability to do good, as well as with the need to do many other things on behalf of its citizens at home and its interests abroad, unquote. Supporters say that it is necessary to revisit foreign policy strategies because the current interventionist and international strategy is very expensive. National security, Richard writes, does not come cheap. Quote, money, lots of it, is required to field a capable modern military with a broad range of missions, to generate necessary intelligence against a broad range of threats, to protect the homeland against a broad range of contingencies, to carry out diplomacy, and dispense assistance to promote a broad range of interests. Unquote. In 2019, the United States spent $732 billion on national defense. This is more than the next 10 countries combined. In this one year, the U.S. spent more than China, India, Russia, Saudi Arabia, France, Germany, the U.K., Japan, South Korea, and Brazil, all together. And this trend of high defense spending is not new. When looking at the dollars, the U.S. defense budget makes up about 15% of all federal spending and about half of all discretionary spending. This total makes up about a third of the annual federal budget. Supporters say that investing in a more isolationist policy would save taxpayers thousands of dollars in military spending and would aid the economy overall. After all, if the U.S. was not taking a leadership role in global affairs, foreign policy spending would reduce alongside the country's involvement. Elliot Nijin is a senior writer at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He says that reducing military spending could funnel funds other places. Quote, somehow the U.S. manages to spend more on its military than the next 10 countries combined, but it is the only member of the 36-nation Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development that does not provide universal health care coverage. The result represents an undeniable threat to public health. Unquote. Isolationists point out that reducing military spending would allow the U.S. to focus funds on other concerns and investments, like fighting environmental changes or investing in domestic policy. Experts point out that there are millions of dollars wasted in the federal budget, including failing programs and administrative costs. For example, some supporters say it is time to reduce the cost of the nuclear program. The U.S. spent three times as much money on nuclear weapons than China spent in 2019, and four times as much as Russia spent. And some proponents say that that spending is far too high. Elliott writes, quote, There is no legitimate security justification for maintaining the outsized U.S. arsenal. A single U.S. nuclear-armed submarine, for instance, is capable of carrying warheads that are collectively nearly 10 times more powerful than all the bombs dropped during World War II, including the two atomic bombs. 
One full salvo from a single sub could wipe out two dozen cities, and the Navy has a fleet of 12 at sea, unquote. Proponents say that military spending and the outsized federal spending period has caused more problems for the American people and the economy than it has helped. Andrew Bakovich is a Boston University professor. He says, quote, To contrast 2014 with 2002, yes, there is a reluctance on the part of the American people to endorse any large-scale use of force, because a large-scale use of force in the previous decade didn't produce the results that were promised, unquote. Isolationists say long, expensive military involvement in recent decades demonstrates how the time has come for prudence in foreign affairs rather than intervention. Stephen Waltz is a Harvard University professor. He wrote a foreign policy op-ed about the future of U.S. involvement in global affairs. Stephen says that the American people have grown frustrated with overreaching interventionist policy. Quote, Instead of making the United States more secure and prosperous while defending core U.S. values, the misguided attempt to remake the world in the United States image sparked needless rivalries with some states, made the terrorism problem worse, led to costly quagmires in failed states, and failed to deliver prosperity beyond the richest 1%. Unquote. Stephen says that the current interventionist policy is not working, and in fact it is even undermining democratic values within the U.S. Global freedom has declined overall in the past 15 years, and the Economist Intelligence Unit recently downgraded the U.S. from a full to a flawed democracy. Quote, According to offshore balancing, the best way to promote liberal values is by setting a good example and using the United States' power, wealth, and good fortune to create an equitable and prosperous society that others would admire and seek to emulate in their own fashion. Restrainers do not jettison values. We believe a different strategy would promote them more effectively. Unquote. Isolationists say that by reducing spending and overreach, the U.S. will be able to focus on long-term investment for the nation's future. Stephen writes, quote, The United States is able to spend more on defense than the next eight countries combined, but that hardly means that doing so is wise. Resources are always finite, even taking into account Washington's unparalleled ability to run massive deficits. And every dollar spent on an overweening foreign policy is a dollar that could be spent on infrastructure and education on which the country's future prosperity and power depend. Unquote. To recap, proponents of an isolationist foreign policy say that these policies maintain peace and avoid complicated alliances. They say it is not the role of the U.S. to act as the world's police. Additionally, supporters say that an isolationist foreign policy shifts the focus to domestic issues. It supports the country as it solves problems within its own nation, rather than focusing on problems abroad. Finally, supporters say that isolationism reduces military spending, redistributing funds, and boosting productivity. After the break, we'll take a look at the opposite opinion, that interventionism and internationalism contribute more to the United States than they take away, and that they set America apart. But first, let's take that break. And we're back. On the flip side of public opinion from isolationism are interventionism and internationalism, these two foreign policy methods involve having an active role in global affairs, whether through covert or overt means. They often involve both political and economic methods. Supporters of interventionism and or internationalism cite the following three reasons. One, an interventionist and or internationalist foreign policy is key to promoting peaceful relationships among world nations. Two, an interventionist and or internationalist foreign policy aids both the U.S. and world economies. And three, an interventionist and or internationalist foreign policy helps continue national security efforts. Let's take a look at these one by one. First, supporters say that an interventionist and or internationalist foreign policy is key to promoting peaceful relationships among world nations. 
The United States has claimed a role as a top superpower and global democratic leader for generations. And supporters say that maintaining this role and helping other nations achieve similar goals is a top priority for the country. By promoting democracy around the world, internationalists and interventionists say that it helps ensure peace and prosperity for all people. When a country's domestic policy is built on democratic values, it prompts the country to act similarly in foreign affairs. John Keel and Joseph Lieberman are co-chairs of the American Internationalism Project at the American Enterprise Institute. They say advancing democracy and human rights are a key responsibility for the U.S. And over the past century, the country has had a phenomenal track record. Quote, Perhaps the greatest example of the triumphant march of the liberal democratic order in the last century was the peaceful fall of the Soviet Union and the subsequent liberalization of its satellite states. On the other side of the world, American engagement has slowly but steadily pushed other countries like Taiwan, South Korea, and the Philippines in the direction of modern representative democracy, to say nothing of Germany and Japan, once authoritarian rivals, now among our staunchest allies. Unquote. Supporters say that the U.S. has a moral responsibility to lead by example and sometimes by intervention. It is by these actions that countries around the world may start to adopt democracy and change policies to support human rights worldwide. John and Joseph write, quote, Democracy provides citizens access to political power, the ability to choose leaders, and ultimately the opportunity to have a say in their own destinies. It gives minority groups access to equal justice and economic opportunity. Upon these values was America born, and they are what have allowed it to prosper, unquote. Internationalists and interventionists say that taking an active role in global affairs benefits the U.S. both short-term and in the long run. It promotes peace as many democracies make better economic partners and allies for the United States. Quote, supporting human rights and democratic ideals isn't just about altruism. Democracies will not go to war with the United States, nor will they support terrorism against it, nor will they produce refugees to flee to it. Unquote. Proponents say that the U.S. is an indispensable nation and that there are few alternatives to American leadership on the world stage. Some say that due to America's size, scope, and power, they are uniquely situated to provide safety, prosperity, and security for people around the world. Internationalists and interventionists say that intervening in world affairs to promote democratic values will benefit foreign nations and the United States. They say that democracy establishes liberty, supports strong economies, and prevents famines and other hardships. Sean Lynn Jones is an associate in the International Security Program at Harvard University. In 1998, he wrote a paper exploring the pros and cons of interventionist foreign policy. In this piece, he says that Americans have a moral responsibility to improve the lives of fellow humans because humanity does not stop at the U.S. border. He wrote, quote, The emergence of the so-called CNN effect, the tendency for Americans to be aroused to action by television images of suffering people overseas, is further evidence that cosmopolitan ethical sentiments exist. If Americans care about improving the lives of citizens of other countries, then the case for promoting democracy grows stronger to the extent that promoting democracy is an effective means to achieve this end, unquote. Researchers have found that spreading democracy can be essential to supporting peace around the world. It can, in short, be a life-saving transition for people around the world, and internationalists and interventionists say it is America's responsibility to share its expertise and example. Sean wrote, quote, Totalitarian and authoritarian regimes have been responsible for the overwhelming majority of genocides and mass murders of civilians in the 20th century. The states that have killed millions of their citizens have all been authoritarian or totalitarian. The Soviet Union, the People's Republic of China, Nazi Germany, Nationalist China, Imperial Japan, and Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, unquote. On the other hand, he says that the research shows democracies virtually never conduct mass killings of their own citizens. Additionally, proponents say that spreading democracy is essential because the U.S. cannot insulate itself from the world. 
Changes in communication, trade, technology, and the environment have created a more interdependent world. And supporters say this interconnectedness illustrates how promoting and preserving democracy serves U.S. interests. Quote, these trends give the United States a greater stake in the fate of other societies, because widespread misery abroad may create political turmoil, economic instability, refugee flows, and environmental damage that will affect Americans. Unquote. Mark Lagan is a political scientist at Georgetown University. He wrote an expert brief for the CFR about internationalism in 2011. In this brief, he shared that promoting democracy has the potential to establish stability and security around the world. Quote, Established democracies never go to war with one another. Foreign policy realists advocate working with other governments on the basis of interests, irrespective of character, and suggest that this approach best preserves stability in the world. However, durable stability flows from a domestic politics built on consensus and peaceful competition, which more often than not promotes similar international conduct for governments. Unquote. Supporters say that establishing democracies in foreign nations promotes human rights around the world. This pluralism has the potential to lift up underrepresented groups around the world, like religious minorities and refugees. Mark writes that promoting democracy has the potential to stop violent extremism and terrorist acts, which ultimately will make the U.S. and the world a safer place. Second, proponents say that an interventionist and or internationalist foreign policy aids both the U.S. and world economies. According to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, more than 40 million jobs depend on trade, and international trade is essential to success across the national economy. The world today is more interconnected than ever before, from travel to business to, yes, the economy and trade. Supporters say that maintaining prosperity goes hand-in-hand with maintaining security and peace. As President Kennedy once said, quote, closer economic ties among all free nations are essential to prosperity and peace, unquote. Internationalists and interventionists point out that strong global leadership has helped make the U.S. a key part of the international economy. John and Joseph wrote in their American Internationalism Project Synopsis, quote, America led the effort to establish key economic agreements and institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the organizations that would evolve into the World Bank and the World Trade Organization. In doing so, we helped create a global economic order that has enabled millions in the U.S. and abroad to climb the ladder of opportunity, unquote. While there are many challenges that come with an interconnected economy, including increased competition, the potential for exploitation, and more, supporters say the benefits far outweigh the risks. Quote, It is true that in the short term, economic restructuring can have a negative impact on many individual Americans, and we should favor policies that improve access to training and education to help individuals adapt to the changing economy. The short term costs imposed by free trade, however, should not make Americans lose faith in the liberal economic order we helped create. Free trade in the long run benefits all, unquote. And overall, the challenges call for more engagement in the world economy, not less. Proponents say it is a key way to ensure the world economy represents American interests as much as the interests of other foreign nations. Free trade is a bedrock of many internationalist foreign policies. Free trade allows goods and services to be bought and sold across borders without or with limited tariffs, quotas, or limits. A free trade agreement is a joint decision where two or more countries outline obligations and protections for businesses and investors in terms of goods and services. According to the International Trade Administration, the U.S. is primarily focused on the following three goals. Quote, reduce barriers to U.S. exports, protect U.S. interests competing abroad, and enhance the rule of law in the FTA partner country or countries. Unquote. The U.S. currently has 14 free trade agreements with 20 countries. While specifics vary, these agreements are essential to creating a more stable and transparent global business community. Proponents say it makes it both easier and cheaper for U.S. companies to move products between trading partner markets. 
According to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, these countries make up about 6% of the world's population outside the U.S., and yet they purchase nearly half of all U.S. exports. Quote, in other words, U.S. fair trade agreements do an outstanding job making big markets even out of small economies. Unquote. This in turn creates profits for American companies, which supporters say leads to more investment in American businesses and creates more jobs for American workers which then leads to more investment into local communities, which generates more money that feeds into the national economy. Internationalists and interventionists say that there are several key benefits to free trade. Donald Boudreau is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center. He says that free trade increases prosperity for Americans and citizens around the world by cultivating an environment where people can buy better quality products at lower costs. Quote, it drives economic growth, enhanced efficiency, increased innovation, and the greater fairness that accompanies a rules-based system. These benefits increase as overall trade, exports, and imports increases, unquote. According to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, at least half of U.S. imports are not consumer goods. Instead, they are materials for U.S.-based producers. Supporters say using a free trade policy would help reduce import costs and thus reduce production costs and spur economic growth. Additionally, proponents say that free trade improves efficiency, innovation, and competition. Donald writes, quote, Over time, free trade works with other market processes to shift workers and resources to more productive uses, allowing more efficient industries to thrive. The result is higher wages, investment in such things as infrastructure, and a more dynamic economy that continues to create jobs and opportunities, unquote. Internationalists and interventionists say that trade keeps the U.S. at the forefront of innovation, and by competing with other countries around the world, keeps businesses on the forefront of long-term growth. According to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, productivity gains have helped U.S. manufacturers stay at the forefront of global competitiveness. This innovation, particularly with automation and information technology, has enhanced their global standing even as employment numbers have declined since U.S. manufacturing's peak in 1979. In 2019, the U.S. exported nearly $1.4 trillion of manufactured goods, more than 80% of all merchandise exports. And in terms of services, exports are on the rise. They reached $850 billion that year. Nearly 60% of all U.S. goods imports are raw materials and other intermediate goods. By reducing or eliminating tariffs, proponents say it lowers the cost for manufacturers and other businesses nationwide, which in turn helps them maintain a competitive advantage. And ultimately, Donald says a free trade policy promotes fairness for U.S. businesses and businesses around the world. Quote, when everyone follows the same rules-based system, there is less opportunity for cronyism or the ability of participating nations to skew trade advantages towards favored parties. In the absence of such a system, bigger and better connected industries can more easily acquire unfair advantages, such as tax and regulatory loopholes, which shield them from competition. Unquote. For example, consider American farmers and ranchers. According to the Chamber of Commerce, about 25% of U.S. farm products by value are exported each year. And for many crops, like wheat or almonds, more than half are sold abroad. Free trade supports farmers as they grow and sell goods. With high productivity levels in U.S. farming, supporters say it would not be possible for Americans to consume with a bounty alone. But the benefits of free trade agreements extend past financial incentives. Quote, trade agreements between the U.S. and foreign countries do more than merely facilitate the exchange of goods and services across borders. They also nudge countries to adopt policies that both reflect deeply held American values and improve the lives of local populations, such as higher labor and environmental standards, unquote. Third, supporters say that an interventionist and or internationalist foreign policy helps continue national security efforts. In 2002, President George W. Bush gave an address at West Point about U.S. foreign policy and national security. In this address, he said, quote, 
Our nation's cause has always been larger than our nation's defense. We fight, as we always fight, for a just peace, a peace that favors liberty. We will defend the peace against the threats from terrorists and tyrants. We will preserve the peace by building good relations among the great powers, and we will extend the peace by encouraging free and open societies on every continent, unquote. Proponents of an internationalist and or interventionist policy say that being a global leader keeps the U.S. safe by balancing power and freedom. In 2009, the State Department released the following statement, quote, The U.S. national security strategy will be based on a distinctly American internationalism that reflects the union of our values and our national interests. The aim of this strategy is to help make the world not just safer, but better. Our goals on the path to progress are clear, political and economic freedom, peaceful relations with other states, and respect for human dignity, unquote. John and Joseph wrote in their synopsis of the American Internationalism Project that U.S. involvement in foreign affairs deters aggression. Alternately, when it fails to deter conflict, it keeps the conflict from reaching U.S. shores. Quote, a strong and well-resourced military is the minimal prerequisite for American leadership. To those new realms of security through which our rivals are attempting to subvert the status quo, cyberspace, outer space, and ideas. Failing to maintain our strength across these domains will risk ceding influence to others who share neither America's values nor its benevolent stance towards the rest of the world, unquote. Supporters say that maintaining a strong national security effort is essential to both foreign policy and global security. By staying active and engaged, it helps maintain peace and prosperity for both the U.S. citizens and people around the world. But they say military is not the only method to ensure security. A strong interventionist and or internationalist policy also includes other methods, such as diplomacy, economic assistance, and public-private partnerships. Schuyler Forrester and Ray Raymond are political scientists who wrote an op-ed in the National Interest in 2016. In this piece, they wrote that the U.S. has great power, and with that great power comes great responsibility. Quote, In recent decades, we have only become more intertwined with an increasingly globalized world. We enjoy an unparalleled ability to project influence and to grow our economy. But we have also become increasingly vulnerable to the loss of critical resources, to economic shocks around the globe, to epidemics, to cyber attacks from states and pranksters alike, and to terrorism. Hence, our own lives and livelihoods depend on our ability to anticipate, shape, promote, and defend against forces that can affect us over time and in material or virtual space. Unquote. Interventionists and internationalists say that maintaining a strong leadership role is essential to national security. Schuyler and Ray wrote, quote, in a globalized world, we have enormous influence, but our ability to coerce has been substantially diminished. Our greater success comes from our ability to persuade, to identify shared interests even in, and sometimes especially in, an antagonistic relationship. Ultimately, leadership is most effective when the leader enjoys the respect of those who are being led, and when those being led believe they have a stake in the system, unquote. Additionally, national security in an increasingly globalized world is relying more and more on intelligence. Supporters say that it is necessary to invest in this technology so the U.S. can anticipate, meet, and shut down issues when they arise. Quote, to avoid blind spots, two key elements of communication need to exist within the policy process. First, the intelligence community must be able to produce good intelligence. Second, those in key policy positions need to be intellectually prepared to listen and assess what the intelligence community says. Unquote. Interventionists and internationalists say to invest in intelligence, it is necessary to build relationships between the intelligence community and policymakers. This includes corroborating claims, releasing intelligence from political ties, and encouraging open-mindedness when listening to and deciding upon intelligence operations. Proponents say that cybersecurity attacks are a looming threat for U.S. national security. 
By investing in infrastructure to deal with these threats and building relationships with other nations to eliminate potential risks, the U.S. can strengthen its government and economy. Cyber diplomacy is becoming increasingly essential to secure national interests on the Internet. Supporters say these efforts are necessary to prevent cyber attacks, maintain diplomacy and dialogue between nations, and ensure open communication even in crisis times. Andrew Barenhaus, a lecturer at the University of Bath. Thomas Renard is a senior research fellow at the Egmont Institute. In 2020, they co-wrote an op-ed for the CFR saying that establishing boundaries in cyberspace is necessary for a more secure future, and it cannot be overlooked as an essential part of national security. Quote, In the last decade, dozens of foreign ministries have been creating offices exclusively dedicated to cyberspace and appointing cyber diplomats in order to respond to the growing politicization of cyberspace and broader technogeopolitical dynamics. This move has concentrated more international cyber policy activities in foreign affairs ministries, elevating the issue in government hierarchies and increasing the level of international activity of each state in cyberspace, unquote. Supporters say that national security is evolving and that staying on the forefront of digital international relationships may make a huge difference in ensuring the safety and prosperity of U.S. citizens. In 2003, the Progressive Policy Institute wrote, quote, Progressive internationalism stresses the responsibilities that come with our enormous power, to use force with restraint but not to hesitate to use it when necessary, to show what the Declaration of Independence called a decent respect for the opinions of mankind, to exercise leadership primarily through persuasion rather than coercion, to reduce human suffering where we can, and to create alliances and international institutions committed to upholding a decent world order." To recap, supporters of an interventionist and or internationalist foreign policy say it is key to promoting peaceful relationships among world nations. They say that as a global superpower, it is the responsibility of the U.S. to lead by example and diplomacy to spread democracy and support human rights around the world. Additionally, proponents say that an interventionist and or internationalist policy supports both U.S. and world economies. They say that free trade makes businesses more competitive and prosperous. Finally, supporters say that these policies support national security efforts, including moving them forward for 21st century security concerns. On the other hand, proponents of an isolationist foreign policy say that these policies maintain peace and avoid complicated alliances. They say it is not the role of the U.S. to act as the world's police. Additionally, supporters say that an isolationist foreign policy shifts the focus to domestic issues. It supports the country as it solves problems within its own nation, rather than focusing on problems abroad. Finally, supporters say that isolationism reduces military spending, redistributing funds, and boosting productivity. But what do you think? Does free trade benefit or harm the U.S. economy? Should the U.S. invest in isolationist policies, retracting from its role as the world's police? Or is it the responsibility of the U.S. to lead by example, spreading democracy and supporting human rights around the world? Should the U.S. be a leader or a follower in foreign affairs? Let me know your thoughts on these questions or anything I talked about in this week's episode by shooting me a text or leaving me a voicemail. You can reach We the Voters at 773-658-9492. You can also email me at wethevotersproject at gmail.com. A quick heads up, your stories and reaction may be used in an upcoming season or another part of the We the Voters site. And let's stay in touch online. I keep this conversation going on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at We the Voters Project on Twitter at HiWeTheVoters, and on Instagram at WeTheVoters. WeTheVoters is a project funded by people like you. If you like what you heard today, please consider supporting this work with a one-time or monthly donation. You can donate on patreon.com slash WeTheVoters or via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. Shoot me an email if you'd like to find out more. You can also support WeTheVoters without spending a dime. 
please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or tell a friend about the show. Snap a screenshot of this episode and tag me on Instagram or Facebook. These are quick things that can make a big impact in helping this project grow. Whether you found me today or 12 weeks ago, in 2019 or 2021, or anywhere in between, thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for your support of We the Voters. Every time you like, listen, subscribe, or donate, it makes a huge difference, and I notice every single time. Everything I talked about in this week's episode is linked in the show notes. You can find them on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. Thank you so much for your support during season one. This has been a wild ride, creating this season and sharing these episodes with you every week. I've had the best time, and we'll see what the future has in store. But until then, I'm Emily Kate, and this was We the Voters. <laughs>